Welcome to this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with my partner Greg Cott, and today we are handing over the reins to our producer, Andrew Gill. Welcome, Mr. Gill. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for us today, Andrew? All right, so you guys know this band, Drive-By Truckers? We heard of them. We yeah, have, have been yeah. big fans, yes. Yeah, um, they've been on the show a few times. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so there's a, a new book about them, which is like one of the first deeply reported books on this band by a guy named Steven Dusner. Um, it's called Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. And, you know, I figured we've had the band on the show so many times. Yes. Yeah. And if we wanted to talk about the drive-by truckers, we'd just talk to Patterson, We would talk right? to the truckers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, being a guy that grew up in the South, I, was, I said, I should interview this guy, and we should do it as a bonus podcast. So well, and I want to hear your take on, on how he uh, captured the South yeah, exactly. and the truckers. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a fun conversation, uh, personally fulfilling. So uh, that's what we've got today. And also, I think... This works well with our Jason Molina episode mm -hmm. because, in a way, they came out, came up around the same time mm -hmm. in sort of similar traditions. Jason Molina, not from the South, of course, but and he met a tragic end. Yeah, where the truckers have had kind of a unlikely, uh, you know, victory lap kind of. Um, they are long lived. So, yeah, so they've got a happy ending uh, to this story. So. You know, to keep our listeners from getting too down from the Jason Molina story. <laughs> yeah, pick them up with the truckers. Get a pick me up with the drive-by truckers. So that's what we've got. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I've had the opportunity to work with uh, Stephen and uh, edit some of his work, and he's an excellent writer. So I'm looking forward to your interview with him about the drive-by truckers. Welcome to Sound Opinion, Stephen Dusner. Thank you. Glad to have you. Great to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yeah, I, I'm excited about the, your book, uh, Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. I'm certain that it will be um, consumed voraciously by the Sound Opinions audience because Drive-By Truckers are probably one of the best represented bands in Sound Opinions uh, history. We've had the band on twice and Jason Isbell on. Um, but you have written a lot about lots of different bands. I remember reading your byline a lot in Pitchfork. Why was Drive-By Truckers the subject of your first book um, instead of any other band that you've ever written about? For a, a number of reasons. Um, I am from the same region of the country that they are. I'm about, grew up about an hour uh, northwest of Muscle Shoals. And so I knew a lot of the landmarks they were talking about and a lot of the, um, the places that they were listing in their songs. And it was, um, I don't know, especially for somebody who had just moved out of the South for the first time at a, at a very uh, crucial point in my life. To hear that, to hear that band, it kind of made me a little homesick. It kind of made me really reconsider how I thought of myself as a Southerner, how I thought of my home. Um, and I think that's kind of stayed with me over the years. And, you know, I knew I wanted to do some sort of long project and I knew that this was a band that had been very important to me. And, and it just seemed like at a certain point, you know, this was right before American band hit that I started the book. And even then I knew that they had amassed a catalog that seemed 
worthy of a book that could support a, a book. And I, I thought that they had really accomplished something that needed to be talked about at length. So, you know, I would count myself as a casual drive by truckers fan. You know, I've, you know, been there for these sessions on sound opinions and, you know, really enjoy a lot of their songs. Um, but I was daunted by the size of their catalog. So going through your book was very, very instructional and helpful to kind of grasp how it all comes together because it is really hard to follow. I did appreciate the way you organized it by place too. That was um, helpful to uh, to kind of understand the different stages of the band. Oh, good, good. I'm glad that comes across that way because I could see that being a, a sticking point for a lot of readers who are looking for a more traditional band biography, but the sort of larger project that the band has un undertaken throughout their career is so unique and so ambitious and I think so meaningful that it felt really natural to kind of approach it this way, to, to sort of to take these place names and sort of figure out what they mean to the band, how these places have informed their music and how they've informed these places and, and sort of made a difference in places like the Shoals and places like Athens. Um, and it was also just kind of fun. It was just kind of fun to think about it, to map it out this way. Um, actually, I was just thinking about the very first thing that I ever wrote about the band, which was the Pitchfork review of the Dirty South. And the first thing I wrote about was this stretch of highway between Selmer, Tennessee, which is my hometown, and Adamsville, Tennessee. And, you know, at, when I was in high school, a lot of my friends and I, we would just race this road to see how fast we could get from one place to the other, like stupid teenagers. And that was the road that Buford Pusser uh, crashed his car on. And that's, that is somebody that figures prominently in the book. He's this kind of redneck sheriff of my county that they made movies about, they wrote songs about. He sort of looms large in a lot of uh, Southern lore. We're gonna take you up to McNary County, Tennessee. Back in the days when Sheriff Buford Pusser ran things around there. Sheriff Buford Pusser was trying to clean up McNary County, Tennessee from all them bootleggers that was bringing crime and corruption and illegal liquor into his little dry county. And for his troubles, he got ambushed. And his wife was murdered and his house got blown up and they made a movie about it called Walking Tall. This is the other side of that story. And so to sort of connect all that, that, that place, that person and this band together, it, I don't know, it just, it, it seemed very important that way. And, and, and very, uh, especially for somebody who was no longer living anywhere close to, to my home, that just seemed so evocative and so, so meaningful that, that, that writing about place just seemed like the natural thing to do. It's interesting how, cause a lot of times more casual fans of drive-by truckers might just hear they're from Muscle Shoals, you know, or, you know, Patterson Hood's David Hood's son. And, you know, he was one of the swampers. And you think, oh, of course, Muscle Shoals, his dad was a musician. Of course, this would be a straightforward line <laughs> for him to follow. But uh, your book proves it's anything but, you know, um, it wasn't really until he got to Athens, Georgia, that he started the drive-by truckers and had a bunch of other false starts before. Um, 
the popular understanding is a little oversimplified and this kind of complicates it and gives a more nuanced story to it. Oh, good. I mean, that place in itself was so complex to me and had changed so much over the years, just from Patterson's generation and his father's generation. And then Jason Isabel's generation, he's Jason's could be Patterson's son. I mean, you know, right. Uh, and you've got a second chapter on the shoals because of that. Exactly. Because. Yeah. It's it, it it kind of like I didn't know that I wanted to do it that way, but that's just how it made me do it. The, the material led me that way. But you know that that place is so complex that it, it kind of warranted a lot of a lot of words in two chapters. And uh, but even even the style of music that comes that we associate is really just a short period in the city's history. And later on, you it's sort of a, a country music publishing uh, capital. Like at a certain point, it, it stops being about R&B and starts being about country music and then, you know, pop music and all these other things. So there's so much going on down there that, uh, that it, it just it's still hard to wrap my head around that this small town has created this mass of, of music. My parents were just visiting from Florida. They live in Tallahassee, Florida. And um they had visited the Shoals a few years ago, and my dad was wearing his Muscle Shoals Sound Studio oh, wow. shirts, and and I was uh, letting him read some of your book, um, and he was really enjoying just learning more about Muscle Shoals, you know. Um, so I I consider like some sort of uh, sub books within your book, you know. <laughs> it's about the history of Muscle Shoals, and you get um, Jason Isbell's origin story in a way. Um, but then also there's a lot about Leonard Skinner in the book. <laughs> um, and I, I took interest in that because I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, oh, wow, yeah. um, where, you know, Leonard Skinner looms very, very large. Um, and I never understood this much about Leonard Skinner until I read your book, um, just how the Ronnie Van Zant era was really a completely different beast than the reformed Leonard Skinner of the late 80s and onto the present, you know? Um, yeah. Can you talk about the connection between drive-by truckers and Leonard Skinner? Sure. You know, the, the truckers breakout album was Southern rock opera, which among many, many other things is specifically about Leonard Skinner and their, their rise and their literal fall when they, their plane crashed in uh, Gillsburg, Mississippi. I think even more than the Allman Brothers, they sort of are the the ultimate Southern rock band. They did not present themselves as anything other than like just a bunch of rednecks who worked really hard, wrote a lot of great songs, put on a fantastic live show and died very early. And so the, the history of the truckers, especially how they present themselves, how they define themselves as a Southern rock band is so bound up in Skinner. And it, for a while, it was this kind of daunting project to, okay, at some point, I've got to, like, I've got to do a deep dive into Skinner and make sure I understand all of it and 
make sure I've got a good handle. And I think, as you were saying, with the truckers catalog being so large, you don't quite know where to start. That's how I felt about Skinner. But then getting into it, I mean, their music is so complex and their depiction of the South is so complex. Not all of it is great. Not all of it is stuff that I agree with. But it's not quite what we think of when we think about Skinner now with this kind of zombie band that kind of rose from the dead. Like, it was almost like a like a horror movie slasher villain. Like, 10 years after the plane crash, they rise from the dead. And that is a very different band. They're playing some of the same songs, but they are playing them in a way that almost erases a lot of that complexity and uh, which is is unfortunate i think southern rock opera among other things was a a chance for the truckers to sort of rescue ronnie van zant and that original lineup of leonard skinner from you know the the clutches of this newer band that arose and even that newer band is is more complex because they've tried to back away from the confederate flag from a lot of these Southern symbols that carry so much baggage and have been unable to do it because their fans won't let them. So they're a very, very complex band in that regard. And so it ended up being something that was very daunting, but was very rewarding. And and, and uh, I really, I, I knew I needed to do that. And, and uh, I'm glad, I'm glad it did. It makes it easier to believe it when you hear some of these stories, like Anytime we play something, uh, if, if Sweet Home Alabama comes up on the show or something, and Jim DeRogatis will always point out, you know, Neil Young and Ronnie Van Zant were friends. They <laughs> liked each other. They enjoyed the songs. It's very hard to believe, uh, having grown up with the zombie <laughs> version of Leonard Skinner shoved down your throat at every turn in Jacksonville. But yeah, your chapters on them uh, really, really give it some more light. And you don't go all the way here, but I might want to. Perhaps Drive-By Truckers is sort of a spiritual heir to the project Ronnie Van Zant was doing. <laughs> Do you think they would claim that or want that? That's interesting. I think... Or was he not as, as nuanced as that? <laughs> I, I think he was a pretty nuanced guy. I don't know that they would... I... Yeah, that's a that's interesting. I don't know that they would embrace them to that degree, but I do think there is mm-hmm. there is something in their relationship to Skinner where they do see something of themselves in Skinner. You know, they weren't like these amazingly gifted improvisers like the Almond Brothers. You know, they weren't like some sort of magical being like Bowie. Like they were just regular guys who decided that they needed to get out of their town and this is how they did it and they worked really hard and they had this determination and grit to to move forward and i think that is definitely something that applies to the truckers i mean even going back before the truckers to their original band adam's house cat um where they were really striving to kind of get out of the shoals and and kind of graduate to this larger uh, stage and never did. And they finally got that with mm-hmm. the truckers. But I think that maybe that experience with Adam's house cat made them realize how similar they were to Skinner in that regard and that kind of work ethic. 
But I also think that it's useful for them to sort of look at Skinner that way because they are really defining themselves against Leonard Skinner. They're really setting up what they don't uh, agree with regarding that band or what they don't uh, relate to. And so they're really, they're, they're a Southern rock band. They're defining themselves with that, but very much on their own terms. So it's not guns and Confederate flags and, and all the stuff that you think about when you think about Southern rock. It's something right. that is very, uh, very different, more progressive politically, more personal, um, and taking from a, a, a wide range of artists as well. Um, I mean, just talking with Patterson in, in particular and all the things he's interested in as, as a music listener. So it goes beyond mm-hmm. just like these rock bands to stuff like Big Thief and Dry Cleaning and, and, and you know, mm-hmm. these great indie bands are right now. So Yeah, or even um, there's a section uh, where Jason Isbell is talking about his first tour and how uh, listening to music. Yeah. He was like, I learned about Captain Beefheart and Pylon and, you know, you know, it's interesting though. also REM comes up a lot talking about them as a, as a Southern band that um, wasn't defined by the guns and Confederate flags and things, but were uh, defiantly Southern. Um, But I feel like Drive by Truckers is, um, is, you know, taking the form of Southern rock in more ways than like REM, I think you could hear them and not know that they were Southern unless you knew more about them. Um, but the, you couldn't miss it with drive by truckers. Right? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I mean, I think some of the imagery that REM uses is very Southern. Some of the language that they use is very mm-hmm. Southern. Um, but I also, and maybe this just comes from listening to new adventures on hi-fi right before I got on the call for this interview. <laughs> Like that's another band that much like the truckers had a moment where they like they defined themselves as Southern and then had a moment where they sort of expanded beyond mm-hmm. that. Um, I think that was more gradual than the truckers. I think the truckers was very, very uh, conscious decision. I mean, they called the, that album American mm-hmm. band as opposed to Southern right. band. So I think that, yeah, I think, I think there's a sort of similar trajectory where you're starting in the South, you're starting in Athens and, and sort of moving out from that and expanding out from that, um, in a way that makes you redefine yourself, but also rethink how you define Southern. Yeah. You know, one, one of the most interesting parts of the book, um, is the making of Southern rock opera. And maybe this is well known by Drive by Trucker uh, fans, but it was the first I'd read about it, how that album was years in the incubation, you know. <laughs> um, and then finally, when they did get it recorded, they couldn't find a label to put it out in the way they wanted. So they crowdfunded it. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how they uh, sprung upon that idea? One of my favorite experiences was writing this book was talking to Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley about the making of that album and what they wanted it to be and what they knew it needed to be. It needed to be ridiculous. It needed to be over the top. It needed to be just like gloriously ridiculous. Uh, it was a, they, it had to be a double album. It had to be on two CDs. 
they wanted this like triple gatefold so that it, you would open it like you would a, a, an album from the 70s. Um, you know, they knew it needed to have a certain kind of uh, artwork to it, that sort of thing. And they recorded it and then they scrapped it. They recorded it again and they scrapped that. And then, you know, they finally got it right um, while recording in Birmingham, Alabama. And then they started shopping it around and nobody would put it out or they would put it out with some compromise. Mm. Like they wanted it all on one disc and they thought that's just people will forget about it. It it needs to be something that gets attention. So they just did it themselves and they raised the money basically by turning it into so, sort of like a company and selling shares in the company. It was very successful and and jason even talked about when he was on tour with them two three four tours into his tenure there they were still showing up at, at people's houses who had invested in that album to play private shows or just hang wow. out you know and so they honored that for years going forward uh but yeah i mean essentially that's the model for Kickstarter at this point. Or, or maybe um, even like an NFT, you know, to move it even further into the future. You know? <laughs> I mean, there are bands doing that where you buy an NFT, you always get into their shows, right? So. Oh God, I hadn't even heard about that, but that's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that 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 it, it incorporates the the listener and the fan on that yeah. level, I think is is very forward thinking. So. Yeah, and this what year was this that they did this? It was late. This was 2000, 2001. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, MySpace didn't exist. They didn't, most bands didn't have websites, you know, it was like pre everything. Yeah, and the thing that this band that had started out as this kind of rickety alt country band with no set lineup and kind of by the seat of the pants mentality, they were really on the the forefront of how they were using the internet and how they were using websites to promote their tours and kind of how they were using, you know, fan forums and things like that. So it's weird to think that they were sort of, sort of ahead of their time. And in a way uh, you kind of point out that that could be one of the reasons they even built a fan base to begin with, because uh, having a website that people could find their tour dates they kind of attracted the Southern expats uh, in all these other cities that would come out to their shows. Um, and in a way, like without that, maybe they wouldn't have built a following, you know? Yeah, I mean, it really created a, a, this community that around this band and, and kind of pulled together all these people who had similar experiences, or at least just similar tastes. But I really think the sort of Southern ex expat audience is major. And not just because I count myself <laughs> among them, but like that's a major force for the group. I think that's a major audience for them, is, you know, because you go anywhere and you can find those people, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's a, that's a very important aspect of that. Yeah, I, of I was their, just, their longevity. I was just repeating your book back to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, in that case, I, I did pretty good. <laughs> We'll be right back with more on the drive-by truckers. And we're back. Let's give the mic back to our producer, Andrew Gill, and his conversation with author Stephen Dusner. You know, so after they've 
released Southern Rock Opera and they've done the crowdfunding, it's getting a little attention. And there's a really dramatic concert uh, that leads to Jason Isbell joining the band. Can you tell that story? Sure. Um, when it is getting some national attention, Spin Magazine wants to do uh, a story on them, and they send a guy named Eric Weisbart, who is a very, very well-known and well-regarded uh, music critic. He founded the uh, the EMP Music Critic Conference that that takes place every year, and is I mean, I can't say enough good things about him and the impact he's had. So he goes down there, and they, the band is trying to figure out a, a place where they can play a gig for him. They want to do it in the Shoals, but no club will have them. Nobody will let them take the stage. So they just do it out at this lake house. And their guitar player, this guy named Rob Malone, doesn't show up. And they're like, what in the world happened to Rob? They think he may be dead somewhere. It just turns out he had just skipped town and, and gone off with this woman and kind of unofficially quit the band, just like just decided not to show up to this the most major show they've ever played. But Jason Isbell is, is out in the audience. Jason and Patterson know each other. And Patterson knows that Jason knows all these songs. So he invites him up on stage just to sort of play the set. And Jason never, le- I mean, he it, he's there for five years, uh, nearly six, actually. And the next day he leaves on tour with them. And, you know, both of he and Patterson described the scene of his mom dropping them, him off like he's going to summer camp and telling Patterson, please don't kill my child, you know? Because he was, what, like 19 or something? Or not very old, 20? Yeah, he was maybe 20, 21. I mean, he was... Yeah around drinking age. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it was this huge, I mean, he was thrust into this situation where most of the band had really worked hard for this and had been playing for Patterson and, and Cooley had been playing for uh, 15 years by that point. And he's suddenly being thrust in front of these crowds that are just going crazy for him and is not quite sure how to handle that at that young age. Um, I think Decoration Day, which is their first album with him, is really fascinating for showing those different perspectives. Jason is writing Outfit, which is a song about basically how, you, how you're supposed to behave as, a, as you know, a rock star. And it's a very much a, a song by somebody who's new to it, these experiences. No Don't ever say your car is broke Don't sing with a fake British accent And don't act like your family's a joke Whereas Patterson and Cooley are writing songs about how being a rock star has like damaged their marriages. They're writing about the suicide of friend of a friend, that sort of thing. Like there, it's these two different perspectives clashing. Well, the drifter he holds on to his youth, just like it was money in the bank. The Lord knows I can't change. 
Sounds better in song than it does with hell to pay. I might as well slip the ring on her finger from the window of a van as it drove away. Cause now she's found herself and I lost mine and I'm just another guy who can't give her anything. It was a very good run, but it towards the end it got very dark as Jason became uh, very erratic in his behavior and his, he was obviously addicted to alcohol and some drugs and in there and it's just it, it was a dark period that they managed to uh, to survive ultimately. So, and then also touring with his wife who he was divorcing as well. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a bad scene but you would know that from listening to Jason's newer albums that uh, that he had that dark period of his life um, you know that he's gotten past now you know yeah and he's sort of done that in real time through his own solo career in a way that I find very impressive that he's he's not been afraid to own up to that behavior and to write about it in a way that I think is very meaningful to his fans as well mm-hmm. so what could have been a tragedy has a has a very happy ending I think in, in that regard yeah. You know, I was thinking about um, there, you know, you point out Jason's solo career has probably outpaced the truckers uh, as far as like total listeners and, and sales and things like that. Um, do you what do you think about their overall projects? Like, um, you know, you talk about the truckers project being to redefine southern rock bands and to sort of, uh, you know, present a different, more nuanced side of the South. Um, what do you think Jason Isbell's project is? Is it just to write good songs or is it, <laughs> do you think he has the same project as the truckers? I think they're similar in that they are telling these stories about Southerners. They're telling these stories specifically uh, in a lot of cases about Southern men and what it means to be a man, what it, what like sort of, in a lot of cases, defying these these very uh, popular ideas of Southern manhood, um, whether that's in songs or in movies or whatever, it's just sort of rethinking that. I think mm-hmm. that's important to Jason. I also think that there is a, a sense of winding that politically and, and suggesting that the people who inhabit these stories and this music as characters, as fans, as creators aren't necessarily going to be politically aligned with what we assume about the South, that it's all Mm -hmm. red state voters or something Mm -hmm. like that, that there's a lot more sort of nuance among this demographic. So I'd have to think about that a little bit more (laughs) in regards to to the specific question about his project. But I, I do think that's important to him. And we're seeing it in his songwriting, but we're also seeing it in how he tours and the headlines he's made by doing a very simple, straightforward, reasonable thing of wanting to make sure all of his fans are vaccinated, mm-hmm. test negative, and are safe. Mm-hmm. Somehow that's controversial, but that's I think that that is part of that project as well. And I think a lot of that stems from his time in the truckers and the example that uh that they gave him at a very impressionable way yeah you mentioned uh american band a little bit earlier um and it's the first album they made after patterson had left the south it moved to portland oregon um 
And I, I like a, one of the quotes near the end of your book is, it's the leaving, not the arriving that shapes the story. Um, what kind of effect did leaving the South have on Patterson as a songwriter? I mean, he, he becomes like a lot of us. He becomes an expat. Um, yeah. I think he gets that perspective that a lot of us have, this kind of third person or, or, or just a different perspective on, on the South, on his home, and can see it in maybe a different light. I always come back to the song Ever South that's on American Band, which is like a family tree song. He's like tracing his family origins all the way back to like Scotland. I mean, generations and generations telling the story of them immigrating to the U.S., settling in the South, what that meant to them and what it meant for him to take that story and that lineage further west and take it out of the South. We fought our losing battles and we held on to our ways And we talk of how we left behind our better days Some were living lives of leisure, some surviving hand to mouth Bash our heads against the future ever south Bash our heads against the future ever south Also to take his accent, I mean he's got a very pronounced southern accent which is is great and and a very sort of musical way of talking that i can't imagine how that played in portland but that's part of that song as well and so i think that that is a song that i identify with very uh, closely for that reason for because it is you know about that southern expat experience yeah for sure you know, we do this Desert Island jukebox game on uh, Sound Opinions uh, all the time, where we ask you, if, you know, what one song, and I would limit you to the drive-by truckers, but <laughs> you you have a lot of passages that do really nicely um, meditate on some of their songs um, and unpack the lyrics and uh, how they're written. Um, but there's quite a few of them in the book. If you <laughs> if you did have to choose just one, um, what would what would be your song? Um, would it be Ever South or would it be something else? Can I cheat and choose more than one? Because you've got three major songwriting talents in the band that are all very oh, sure. different. Oh, sure. You could do one of each, I guess. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Because otherwise I'm like, I, I'm my head's going to explode. Um, so for Patterson, I would say The Living Bubba, which mm -hmm. is... Um, a very early song that actually predates the drive-by truckers. And it's about this guy, Gregory Dean Smalley, who was a musician in Atlanta, part of the redneck underground. He um, organized this annual event that they played uh, very early on called Bubba Palooza. And he was diagnosed with AIDS and kept playing and kept booking more shows even the, as his health deteriorated. And, you know, upon learning of his death, Patterson wrote this song, just sort of describing, trying to figure out why he was still doing it. And it's a profoundly moving song to me. Like, I've been moved to tears listening to that song on several occasions. But I also think it's it's a really good explanation of why he does what he does, like why it's important to do this.
for Cooley, I'm going to go with Zip City, which is off of um, Southern Rock Opera. And it's all told from the mind of this 17-year-old boy who's driving his muscle car to see his younger girlfriend and realizing that they're never going to get married, that she's just kind of this thing for him to do. Like, it's it's a very dark song, but it seems very realistic in its depiction of a 17-year-old boy's mind. The turns of phrase that he's using, the imagery that he's using, it's just like every line. If it, It's one of those things that if you highlighted every great line in that song, you'd highlight the whole song. For Jason, I always go back to Danko Manuel, which I don't even think a lot of people consider his one of his best trucker songs, but I, I love that one for what it says about some of this, this very similar to Loving Bubba, where he's talking about uh, Rick Danko and Richard Manuel from the band, not the Drive-By Truckers band, but Capital B band, and trying to figure himself out and, and not really finding an answer at the end of the song but i almost feel like that makes the song better that that it's it's so open-ended and it's so it's going to be you know just thinking about him playing that song night after night after night on the road it felt like a an interesting way to hold himself accountable uh i don't know if that's how he felt about it but that's always what i've seen so I would say those would be my three. Well, thank you so much for joining us um, and for writing this book and for uh, unwinding this like tangled thread of the drive-by truckers for those of us who have not been following it very closely all these years. So <laughs> now we can catch up and hopefully uh, stay tuned for their next chapter as they move forward. Uh, yeah. So thank you, Stephen Guzman. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That is it for this bonus episode. To support Sound Opinions, become a member on our Patreon and connect with other listeners in our Facebook group. We always love to get voice messages from you as well at soundopinions.org. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott.